Would you please stand with me as we read the Word of God together this morning? I invite you to open your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, to Luke chapter 12. And we will begin reading in verse 13 and continue through verse 21. Luke 12, beginning in verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who appointed me a judge or arbitrator over you? Then he said to them, Beware and be on your guard against every form of greed. For not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man was very productive. And he began reasoning to himself, saying, What shall I do, since I have no place to store my crops? Then he said, This is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, You fool, this very night your soul is required of you. And now who will own what you have prepared? So is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Amen. Pray with me. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that we can approach you as you are seated upon your throne of grace. We thank you that you have provided a mediator between sinful man and the holy God and that is your son the Lord Jesus Christ it is on the grounds of his work and his righteousness alone that we approach you and that we do so with great confidence having the full assurance of hope that we belong to you and that we are loved by you and that we are welcomed into your presence father we thank you for ultimately giving of your son to us and we thank you for all other things that you've given to us and we thank you even as we have read this passage in Luke 12 we thank you for your warnings we thank you for Christ speaking such powerful words of truth to people who needed to hear this kind of a warning about greed Father, we too need to hear this warning. We have hearts that naturally covet, that naturally desire more and more, and that natural sinful desire is fueled by a culture that idolizes possessions. And so, Father, I pray that even this morning that you would make us to be on guard against every form of greed and that we would recognize that even if in your providence we have an abundance of possessions that this is not where we find our life we do not find our life and our joy in things and in money our life and our joy comes from you O God it is you that we desire above all things. Father, we thank you for being such a God and loving us in such a way that you have made us to be satisfied with you. Father, I pray that you would teach us the lesson of how to be content with what you have chosen to give to us, with the life that you've given to us. 
And most importantly, that we would be content and satisfied with you and your loving kindness. Father, we thank you for the assurance and the promise that you are always doing us good. Even when we struggle and suffer in life and face trials of many kinds, your word promises that you are working all things together for our good and that you are actively pursuing us with your goodness every day of our life. And so, Father, with this morning we run to you. We run to you and we cast upon you all of our cares, all of our burdens, all of the heavy things that are upon our hearts, and we seek our refuge and strength from you, not from the arm of the flesh. Our confidence is not in ourselves, it is not in the world, it is in you alone. Father, I pray that you would encourage every heart that is here. I pray that you would fill us with joy and rejoicing and peace, the joy and peace that comes only through the gospel of Christ. Father, we pray for your help. We pray that you would minister to us. And we also pray for the many people who are in harm's way with the hurricane. Lord, we commend all of those who are affected by this storm and who may right now be in the process of losing all of their possessions. We pray that your mercy would abound in this situation and that this would be a time that you would draw many to yourself Lord, we recognize that when tragedies strike and when we lose things, it is a reminder that the things of this life are temporary and that we live in a fallen world where sin produces judgment. And yet there is one way of escape, there is one way of salvation, and that is in your Son. And so we thank you, Father, for placing us in your Son. Thank you for delivering us from our spiritual death and blindness and bondage and corruption. May you reveal yourself to us in a profound way, again, so that we are left rejoicing, not in our circumstances but in you is our great God. We humble ourselves before you, and we pray all of this with joy and with gratitude in the name of Christ, our Savior and our Lord. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. The story is told of a pilot who always looked down intently on a certain valley in the Appalachians when his plane passed overhead. One day his co-pilot asked him, what is so interesting about that spot? The pilot replied, see that stream? Well, when I was a kid, I used to sit down there on a log and fish. And every time a plane flew over, I would look up and wish I were flying. Now I look down and wish I were fishing. <laughs> this little story illustrates the reality of discontentment. This past weekend, my family and I visited the Perot Museum of Nature and Science in Dallas. And in one part of that museum, there was a world population clock. It is constantly increasing in number. Currently, there are more than seven and a half billion people living in the world. That is staggering. And one of the thoughts that occurred to me was this. How many of the more than seven and a half billion people living in the world are content in their life? I wonder. There is obviously no way to know for sure, but no doubt very few people in the world are content. 
someone has well written, all the world lives in two tents, content and discontent. And I think it is fair to say that the vast majority of people, the vast majority of people, especially in our culture, live in the tent of discontent. Our culture, with all of its emphasis upon materialism and prosperity and entertainment, breeds discontentment. All of the emphasis on personal rights and the idea that we deserve to have a happy life and to have a certain kind of life, all of this kind of thinking breeds discontentment. We are bombarded with commercials and advertising that are essentially designed to do one thing, and that is to produce discontentment in you and in me. The commercials and the advertising say, you need a new car. You need a new house. You need a new wardrobe. You need new furniture. And on and on it goes. Furthermore, it is common to the human experience to think that if we could only achieve a different set of circumstances in life then we would be satisfied and content. But I warn you, this is a deception. It is a deception. As the saying goes, the grass is always greener on the other side. This is how we are prone to think until we reach that other side and realize that it was just an illusion. It was a deception. People seek satisfaction in a location. If I could only live here or there, then I would be satisfied in my life. People seek satisfaction in their circumstances. If I, if I could only have this set of circumstances, then I would be satisfied in my life. People also seek satisfaction in money and possessions. If I, if I could only achieve this amount of income, if I could only have these things then I would be satisfied. But for these people, contentment eludes them. Contentment is like the desert mirage that you see in front of you, but you can never reach it. And that is because contentment is being sought after in all of the wrong places. Now, beloved, contentment is vital to the subject of spiritual depression. Simply put, a spirit of discontentment can lead to disappointment and disillusionment in life, which can then lead to spiritual depression. And for this reason, we are addressing it today. If you will look at your bulletin insert, you will note that we are currently looking at our third and final major point, Roman numeral three, the remedy for spiritual depression. And under this heading, we are developing a number of subpoints, and we are currently looking at letter C, the cultivation of Christian hope. So far, we have looked at three ways we do this. Number one, distrust yourself. Number two, talk to yourself. And number three, we looked at last time, fight for faith, that is faith in God. And now we come to a fourth way to cultivate hope in your life, and that is this, learn contentment. And I want to begin here by giving you some really good news. As a Christian, contentment, while difficult to obtain, is possible. It is achievable. It is not beyond your reach. It is within your reach. It is possible for you to live a contented life Regardless of your circumstances and your trials, this, beloved, is very good news. Contentment is reachable. It is possible. In the year 1648, the Puritan Jeremiah Burroughs wrote a book entitled The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. I love that title. And from that title, we are reminded of a couple of things. Number one, contentment is indeed rare. It is a rare thing in the world, but it is possible. 
It is possible. It is something that you can have in this life. And then number two, contentment is valuable. It is valuable like a rare jewel. And therefore, it is something that should be sought after with all diligence. And as we will see this morning, contentment does not come naturally to us. It is something that we must learn. Now, let's consider a definition of contentment provided by Jeremiah Burroughs. It is on your bulletin insert, and he writes this. Follow it very carefully. Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. I find this to be an exceptional definition of contentment. And to it I add, amen, with many exclamation marks. Would you note that he says contentment is an inward frame of spirit? That is to say it is not primarily external, but rather it is an attitude of the heart. It is an attitude of the heart that is sweet rather than bitter, and it is quiet rather than grumbling and complaining, and furthermore, it is gracious in that it is the work of God's grace in the soul of a man or a woman. Only God can make you content. It is a work that only God can do. It is not natural. It is supernatural. And lastly, it freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. And so contentment involves, this is very critical, it involves submission to the will of God and to the providence of God. But it's not forced submission. It's not coerced. It is glad submission. It is joyful submission. It freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. And so contentment is the recognition that God, who is your father, knows how to order all things in your life better than you do. And that is good news. It is trusting that God always knows what is best and that he always does what is best in your life as someone who is in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, with these things in mind, let's turn to the classic biblical passage on contentment, and that is Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 13. And as we look at this passage together, let me remind you of Paul's circumstances at the time of his writing. When Paul wrote Philippians, he was living at the Hyatt Regency in the penthouse suites with all of the comforts, pleasures, and amenities that you can imagine. No, that is not the case at all. Paul was a prisoner in Rome. This is a prison epistle. And he was a prisoner in Rome because he had been falsely accused by a Jewish mob in Jerusalem. And consequently, he had been unjustly arrested and unjustly imprisoned. Now, if that had happened to you, let me ask you, how would you feel about that? How would you handle that kind of terrible circumstance? And so as Paul writes this letter, he had lost his freedom. He was no longer able to come and go as he pleased. He was literally chained to a Roman soldier with no privacy. He had lost many of the comforts in life that he had previously known. And what is more, he was awaiting trial before Caesar, which could possibly lead to his painful execution. These were Paul's circumstances as he wrote this letter to the Philippian church. And yet in the midst of such trying circumstances, Paul knew what it was to have a lasting and abiding contentment. He writes in verse 11, I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. 
Those words deserve to be written in gold. Now, just a little bit of background is helpful at this point. One of Paul's purposes in writing to the Philippians was to thank them for the gift that they had sent to him through Epaphroditus from Philippi to Rome. And so Philippians is, in one sense, a thank you letter. In chapter 4 and verse 10, Paul writes, But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. And then verse 14, Nevertheless, you have done well to share with me in my affliction. Paul is in an affliction. And the church had helped him. They had done well to share with him in his affliction. Verse 18, but I have, received more, I have received everything in full and have an abundance. I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And so Paul was eager to express his thanksgiving for their generous and thoughtful gift, but at the same time, He was also eager not to give them the wrong impression about himself. While thankful, Paul does not want them to think that he was discontent without their gift. And so he writes in verse 11, Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. Let's focus for a moment on that word content. The Greek word that Paul uses here literally means self-sufficient. Self-sufficient. It is the idea of independence. Not independence from God, but independence from circumstances. It means to have enough and to be satisfied regardless of one's circumstances. And so Paul is saying that he doesn't need a certain set of circumstances in his life in order to be satisfied. He doesn't need to live under certain conditions or in a certain location in order to be satisfied. As a prisoner in Rome facing potential execution, Paul, listen, was a satisfied man. His was a satisfaction that transcended his circumstances, his affliction, and his suffering. And so when Epaphroditus walked into Paul's place of confinement for the first time, he did not find a dejected man. He did not find a complaining man. He did not find a discontented man. He found a man who was satisfied, who was satisfied even in the circumstances of affliction. Epaphroditus found Paul to be, in the words of Jeremiah Burroughs, in a sweet and quiet frame of mind, gladly submitting to God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. Now, would you please notice that Paul says here he learned to be content. In other words, this is not natural, even for the Apostle Paul. This was not automatic to him as an apostle. He had to learn this frame of mind over time. And notice the scope of his contentment. For I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. And so his was an abiding contentment, a lasting contentment, again, that transcended whatever circumstances were his in the providence of God. In verse 12, Paul elaborates on his contentment. He says, I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. Notice the series of contrasts there in verse 12. Humble means and prosperity, being filled and going hungry, having abundance and suffering need. These were the circumstances throughout 
Paul's life as a Christian. There were times in his life when he experienced humble means and when he went hungry and when he suffered need. And then there were also circumstances in his life in which he experienced prosperity and being filled and having an abundance. But none of these things mattered as far as his contentment is concerned. Because contentment is independent of circumstances. Paul was able to be content when his circumstances were favorable and when his circumstances were unfavorable. Now, if you notice carefully, there are two different skills to be learned here. How to be content in times of need and how to be content in times of prosperity. And Paul said that he could do both. He could do either one. Let's take the first one. How to be content in times of need. I think it is fair to say that it is our natural tendency when we go through suffering, when we go through trial, when we go through opposition, when we go through medical problems or perhaps financial difficulty, it is very, very difficult, we find it, to be content and joyful. The overwhelming temptation is to complain and to murmur and to fret, and to be discontent in life. At some point in your life, beloved, you will be needy. Perhaps this morning you are needy. Perhaps you have the kind of life where you are frequently needy in terms of trials and suffering. And therefore, it is a great skill to learn to be content when you are undergoing trial. Paul says, I know what it's like to be poor. I know what it's like to have nothing to eat. I know what it's like to suffer affliction, and yet still in those circumstances to be content. And what is profound about Paul is that these are not merely words these are not just words. This is how Paul lived. Hold your place in Philippians. We'll turn back to it in a moment and turn for a moment to Acts 16. Acts 16 is a classic passage of Paul suffering. He goes to Philippi in Acts 16. He would eventually suffer imprisonment. And we'll pick it up in verse 22. The crowd rose up together against them, and the chief magistrates tore their robes off them and proceeded to order them to be beaten with rods. When they had struck them with many blows, I mean, this was not a little beating, many blows. They threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to guard them securely. And he, having received such a command, threw them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. What an awful situation. This is not the kind of situation where they are afforded cable television, three hots and a cot, many of the amenities that prisoners today are used to, they are suffering tremendously. And then we come to verse 25, which is tremendously humbling. But about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. And so, beloved, I submit to you that what Paul writes in Philippians 4, these are not just words. This is how Paul lived. He learned to be content in whatever circumstances God brought into his life. 
Now, what about the other side? What about favorable circumstances? You might think that it would take no skill at all to be content in good circumstances, but that is not the case. Look at the quote from Charles Spurgeon. He says this, speaking of Philippians 4, These are both hard lessons to learn. I do not know which is more difficult of the two. Probably it is easier to know how to go down than to know how to go up. How many Christians have I seen grandly glorifying God in sickness and poverty when they have come down in the world? And all how often have I seen other Christians dishonoring God when they have grown rich or when they have risen to a position of influence among their fellow men? These two lessons, grace alone, can fully teach us. And so there are two skills that must be learned. Contentment in affliction and contentment in prosperity. And perhaps prosperity is the more difficult of the two. Now going back to Jeremiah Burroughs and his book on contentment, he talks about what is called the principle of subtraction as it relates to contentment. Someone thinks to himself, there is something out there that I want, and when I get that thing that I want, then I will be satisfied. Well, you know the Bible addresses that. It's called coveting. It's called coveting. And it will also lead to disappointment and disillusionment, because if you are not content now, you won't be content then, even if you get what you think will make you satisfied. If you get it, It will not satisfy you. It will lead to disappointment and disillusionment. And this is critical to recognize because the world says the key to contentment is accumulation. More and more and more. But in reality, the key to contentment is not addition. It is subtraction. It is subtraction. Contentment is not found by adding to what you already have, but by subtracting from your desires so that your desires match the providence of God. And so it is imperative that you chop your desires down like a tree until the desires of your heart match God's providence what God has given to you in your life through his divine providence. If you look on the bulletin at the quote from Joseph Wilson, he says it so well, the fewer desires, the more peace. Is that not true? The fewer desires, the fewer wants, the fewer cravings, the more peace. And that is so foreign to our culture into the way of thinking by the world. And so let's think about this for a moment, a very powerful question. What material possessions do you really need? And I'm saying the right word there, need, not want. What material possessions do you really need in order to be content in your life? Are you ready for this? Turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6 and prepare to be convicted. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 7 through 10. Paul is addressing in this chapter the subject of money, possessions, and contentment. And he says in verse 7, something that is a truism, for we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. What did you bring with you when you were born? Nothing. And what will you take with you when you go? Nothing. Verse 8. If we have food and covering, with these we shall be content. What do you think about that? Do you agree with that? You should. It's the Word of God, it is our authority. If we have food 
and covering. With these we shall be content. And so do you have food? Of course you do. Just like me, an abundance of food. Do you have covering? That is clothing. And do you have shelter? Of course you do. And this is all you need to be content in terms of material possessions. That's what Paul says. He continues in verse 9, But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires. There are those desires that must be subtracted. They fall into many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. And then he says very famously in verse 10, For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Listen, the seduction of money and power and possessions is so powerful that it has led some professing believers to commit apostasy, to abandon the gospel and the Christian faith altogether. And it does not bring them to a place of satisfaction and contentment and joy and peace. It brings them, Paul says, into a place where they pierce themselves with many griefs. What a warning. And so if we are going to learn contentment, we must reduce our desires for things. Many of the things people say that they need to be happy aren't needs at all. I remember having a conversation many years ago with a, with a guy that I grew up with since elementary school. And as adults, we were having a conversation, and he told me that he had to have a 3,000-square-foot home or he could not be happy. Now, is it nice to have more square footage? Of course it is. But is it right to say that you have to have 3,000 square feet in order to be happy? That's not a need. That is a want. And perhaps it is a greed. So a question to ask that's important is, is it a sin to be rich? What says the Bible on this? The answer is no, of course not. Wealth is not sinful, but the love of money is sinful, as Paul says there in verse 10. But how do you know? If you have the love of money, it's very simple, really. If you are willing to sin in order to get money, or if you are willing to sin in order to keep money, then you have the love of money. And so take that and use it as a standard to apply apply over your own life and to evaluate your own life as it relates to money. If you are willing to sin in order to get money or to keep money, then you have the love of money. That is what is the sin. Not the possession of money and not the possession of things. If you are rich, as all of us are here this morning, it is proper to enjoy what God has given to you and to enjoy the things that God has given to you. It is not sinful to enjoy God's gifts to you, but you must guard your heart from making God's gifts an idol. And that is what Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 6, in verse 17, instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to feel guilty about. No, to enjoy, to enjoy. Verse 18, instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. Powerful lessons by Paul as it relates to contentment, money, and possessions. And so if favorable circumstances and wealth and possessions are not the source of contentment, what is? God. God is. If there is the principle of subtraction, there is also the principle of addition. And so in order to learn contentment, you must subtract your desires for worldly things and for possessions and for money. And then you must also add or increase your desires for God. For God. 
You remember what Paul says in Philippians 3 when he shares his conversion story? That I want to know Christ. And I want to know him more and more and more. That is the cry of a contented heart. It is a heart that practices the principle of subtraction and addition. That is, addition in desire for God. On your bulletin, there is a quote from John Piper, one of my favorite Piper quotes. He says, sin is what you do when you are not satisfied with God. And so when you find yourself yielding to the temptation of sin, listen, what is going on in your heart at root is this. At that moment, you have lost satisfaction in God. With that thought in mind, let's turn to the minor prophet, Habakkuk, chapter 3. And over the years, we have from time to time turned to this very powerful passage by Habakkuk. Habakkuk takes a little longer to find. Habakkuk 3. And we will pick it up in verse 17. And I want you to carefully weigh the words that are communicated here. Habakkuk 3.17, Though the fig tree should not blossom, and there be no fruit on the vines, though the yield of the olive should fail, and the fields produce no food, though the flock should be cut off from the fold, and there be no cattle in the stalls. What is that a picture of? Desolation. The loss of prosperity, the loss of wealth, the loss of material possessions. And he says in verse 17, though this happen, now verse 18, yet I will exult in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength, and he has made my feet like hinds feet and makes me walk on my high places. And so what do we learn from Habakkuk? We learn this, beloved. You can lose everything. And yet if you still have God, you can be content. You can be satisfied. We sang Psalm 90 this morning. And that was very providential because I wanted to look at Psalm 90, verse 14. There is a key verse here in light of our discussion this morning. Psalm 90 and verse 14 Like last time, I exhorted you to memorize Romans 15, 13. Likewise, I exhort you to memorize Psalm 90 and verse 14. If you do not yet have it memorized, live in this verse. It is the Psalm of Moses. And he says, Oh, satisfy us in the morning with your loving kindness, that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. And so I ask you, what is the source of our satisfaction? It is in God. It is in his loving kindness to us. And that is the cause of our singing and our joy all of our days. There is nothing here about circumstances or money or possessions. And then now back to the New Testament, Hebrews 13 and verse 5, a verse that we have to look at in this discussion Hebrews 13 and verse 5, a verse that deals with the subject of contentment and money. Hebrews 13, 5, make sure that your character is free from the love of money. Being content with what you have. Don't live your life comparing yourself to your neighbor and to others, always coveting their life. And falling into disillusionment because your life doesn't match their life. He says, make sure that your character is free from the love of money. Being content with what you have. Why? For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. And so I ask you, beloved, how is it that you can be content? Because you have God, who is your father who will never leave you or abandon you. Now, at this point, you should be thinking, 
There has to be some real power for contentment to be a reality in somebody's life. And that is exactly right. Contentment cannot be achieved by human strength. And this is where we go back to Philippians 4. Philippians 4 in verse 13. Another very famous saying by Paul. And as we've already developed verses 10 through 12, you will note that the context has nothing to do with athletics. It has nothing to do with sports. It has nothing to do with touchdowns or hitting home runs. It has everything to do with contentment, whether it's in affliction or in prosperity. Paul writes in verse 13, I can do all things. That is, in all circumstances of my life, I can do all things through him or through Christ who strengthens me. Again, this is not about achieving athletic notoriety. It has nothing to do with that. It has everything to do with contentment. And it is good news because we recognize that there is a source of power that is capable of making us content, and it is the power of Christ. And here is more good news. Paul is just like you. He is a sinner saved by the same grace of God that you are saved by. And if Paul could be content in his circumstances, then you can too, because the same source of power is available to you that was available to Paul. And so I want to ask you this diagnostic question, this probing question. Would it be fair to say of you that you are content, that you are satisfied in God regardless of your circumstances? I realize that is a convicting question. It is convicting to me to ask it to you because I've asked it to my own heart already this week. Well, there is an easy way to know the answer to that question. A contented heart is manifested in a very obvious way. How is a contented heart manifest? By giving thanks to God. That's how. And a discontented heart is also easily manifested. How? In complaining and grumbling and murmuring. And so in view of that, I ask you again, are you content? Are you a satisfied person in God? You show me a person who is filled with thanksgiving to God, and I will show you a contented person. You show me a person who is marked by complaining and grumbling and murmuring, and I will show you a discontented person. If you are proud and unthankful and have unbiblical expectations for your life, you will be discontent and you will complain. If you think that God owes you certain things in your life, a certain set of circumstances in order to make you happy, then you are setting yourself up for great disappointment and great disillusionment, which can lead to despair and spiritual depression. And so as you evaluate your life as a whole and what God has given you and what God has not given to you, and how all of that fits with your expectations and so forth. Look once again at a quote by John Piper. This is so meaningful, so helpful. I've been so helped by this particular quote over the last number of months. He says this, Occasionally weep deeply over the life you hoped would be. Grieve the losses. Then wash your face Trust God and embrace the life you have. That is so powerful. That is so helpful. Weep over what you don't have, over what you have lost. There is real pain there. 
And then reorient yourself, wash your face, get it together, trust God, and embrace the life God's given to you. Listen, the life you have is the life that God has given to you. And the life God has given to you may not be everything you wanted it to be. But please remember before you begin to complain that God owes you nothing except judgment for your sin. Is this not true? This is true. And so to complain and to grumble and to murmur is a complete failure to remember that you are a sinner to whom God owes nothing except judgment. Lamentations 3, this is the last verse that we will turn to. Lamentations 3.39. We looked at Lamentations earlier in this series. In this verse, this one statement by Jeremiah is so profound. Lamentations 3 and verse 39. Lamentations immediately follows the book of Jeremiah. And remember that Lamentations is a book about the funeral of a city. That is the funeral of Jerusalem. It has been destroyed by God as an act of judgment. And Jeremiah, in light of that, is lamenting. He is weeping. And then he writes in chapter 3, verse 39, Why should any living mortal or any man offer complaint in view of his sins? That is powerful. Complaining is spiritual insanity. That's what it is. It is having lost your mind spiritually. As a Christian, you never have a legitimate reason to complain because God never treats you as your sins deserve. As a Christian... You always have reason for rejoicing and for thanksgiving. Otherwise, Paul could not have commanded the Thessalonians to rejoice when your circumstances are favorable. Is that what he writes? Rejoice always. Two verses later, always giving thanks to God for this is his will for you in Christ Jesus. It is the will of God for you to rejoice always and to always give thanks to God. How can this be? What is the basis of this kind of a life? Well, God has saved you from your sins, for one. He has saved you from your sins through the great sacrifice of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus told his disciples to rejoice in Luke 10.20 that their names are written in heaven. And that is a constant cause for joy and rejoicing and thanksgiving. And furthermore, God has given you the hope of future glory. You have heaven in front of you. You have eternity future in front of you. And God has given you the promise of present good in this life. He has given you the promise that he is pursuing good for you always, Psalm 23, and that he is working all things together for your good, Romans 8, 28. Now, I have to give one caveat. If it is within your power to improve your situation, to improve your life, to improve your circumstances, if it is in your power to do that, and it's lawful, by all means, do it. I mean, if you have an illness, you don't want to make the wrong conclusion and say, you know what, I'm just going to be content and not go to the doctor and not take medicine. If it is within your means to improve your situation and to improve your life, then do it. But if there is some difficulty in your life that you cannot change, then you must learn to be content with that difficulty. It is in your life by God's providence. On your bulletin, there is a quote from George Seavers who says this, contentment is an embracing of the providence of God. 
He's exactly right. Contentment is founded upon a confidence in God's sovereignty. It is founded upon the fact that God ordains whatsoever comes to pass in your life, including your trials. Contentment, then, is resting in and trusting in God that he always does what is best for you in your life. And when you live in the awareness of these truths by the power of Christ, you will have a sweet and quiet frame of mind which gladly submits to God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. As we conclude, at the age of 57, J.C. Ryle wrote an autobiography for his children. One of the chapters in that autobiography is called this, Bankruptcy. Do you think that's going to be a, a pleasant chapter? It's a terrible chapter. J.C. Ryle's father was a wealthy banker, and their family lived a very affluent life. Ryle even had plans of entering into politics as a career, becoming a member of parliament. That is, until the day they went bankrupt and everything changed, literally in an instant. If you'll look on your bulletin at the quote from Ryle, he says this in his autobiography in the chapter on bankruptcy, it would perhaps be impossible to give any correct idea of the stunning violence of the blow which the ruin inflicted upon us all. The next sentence is so stunning. We got up one summer's morning with all the world before us as usual and went to bed that same evening completely and entirely ruined. Can you imagine what that must have been like? Wake up in the morning, the whole world is your oyster. You go to bed destitute. He says the immediate consequences were bitter and painful in the extreme and humiliating to the utmost degree. Imagine the shame and disgrace and humiliation the Ryle family experienced because of their bankruptcy. Thirty-two years after that horrible event, Ryle writes this autobiography, and in the next quote he says this, I ask my children and anyone who may read this autobiography not to forget this, I ask them to remember that I felt most acutely my father's ruin, my exile from Cheshire with the destruction of all my worldly prospects, and I have never ceased to feel them from that day to this, 32 years later. He continues, but I would have them know that I was submissive to God's will and had a firm and deep conviction that all was right, though I could not see it and feel it at the time. That is profound. This is the testimony of a man who hopes in God. And finally, in Ryle's description of that great trial, he quotes Richard Baxter, who writes this, I groan, but I do not grumble. That summarizes it. I groan. This life makes us groan. And that is proper, Romans 8. We groan. We feel pain. We feel loss. We weep. We feel the disappointments of life and the pains of life. But I do not grumble because I'm satisfied ultimately in God. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for ministering to us through your word in the deepest pains of life, in the deepest trials of life. We thank you that it is possible for us, even in affliction, to be content and to be satisfied 
Father, I pray that you would teach us these things as we have learned. Paul himself had to learn this. And I pray that we as your disciples who are in the school of Christ, that you would teach us what it means to be content in any and every circumstance. That when we suffer loss and when we are without, that we would not grumble and complain and that we would not covet and that when we are in seasons of prosperity that we would not set our hope on those things and become distracted from our true source of joy namely you Father we thank you for the life the, the teaching and the example of Paul we thank you that even after being beaten with many blows that he was able to sing and to still experience joy in you. And so, Father, we thank you that you have given yourself to us. You have reconciled us to yourself in the death of your Son so that we might have you, that we might have life eternal, that we might have the fullness of joy in this life and in the life to come. And we pray this with grateful hearts and with thanksgiving. In Christ's name, amen. amen.